big chunk of chapter 2 today. Um, so if you are following along in one of these Bibles in a seat near you, um, it is on page number 640. 640. Um, the words will be behind me, but if you have a copy of God's Word, follow along with that, whether it be um, in book or app form. And then um, let's all stand together uh, in the honor of reading God's Word as we read um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Tony, um, come up and we will pray with you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray for my brother um, Tony this morning. Um, let uh, his words be your words. Um, let us hear his words as your words and be um, inspired to, to know better you and those who you've called um, to, to be yours, um, to be your ministers, to be your servants be your church. Lord, we love you and we pray in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. It's going to be interesting. Hi, guys. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I just want to tilt here a little bit, so if I fall over, you'll know it, it wasn't, wasn't my fault. I didn't intend to. Um, all right, so silence in the room, and then a loud, booming voice. I come with a word from the Lord. You like the hand motions, too? Have any of you guys, I don't know if you have, a, a, like, a satellite receiver that has the Christian channel on it, or if you have, like, the, the antenna where you turn to, like, channel number 25, I think is in, it is in here, and you get, you get the Jesus channel, right, that has a day full of programming with men who stand up, and, and women too, who stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord for you, right? Um, there was a, a, famous, a famous guy a few decades ago by the name of Peter Popoff, who was one of those guys. Any of you guys ever heard of Peter Popoff? You're all giving me blank looks. And so um, Peter Popoff was a very famous, very prominent televangelist. He was well-loved and well-liked, and had, um, 
at least he, he said he had, the power to heal people, right? Um, so he would pray over people, and, and folks would stand up and get out of wheelchairs. Um, and he had this uncanny ability to point to people in the audience that he'd never met before and say, you, sir, you have a broken you know, leg or whatever, or you have cancer of the pancreas, or you have dot, dot, you know, fill in the blank. And he would pray over people, and uh, it, was a, it, was a huge, it was a huge deal. Like, he was a big deal in that, that world. People watched his, his shows, his specials, and they would travel from all over the country to see him. Um, he was a fake. He was a fraud. Um, the, to the people sitting in the chairs and in the, and in the seats who he would point at and tell them their life story, they were just, oh, it's amazing. And what they forgot is that they'd filled out a prayer request card on their way into the event. And what had happened was is his wife had uh, taken note of certain individuals as they came in so she would be able to recognize them. And she sat up in a booth and uh, with a microphone, and he had an earpiece, and she would whisper and say, the person on row eight, second seat, they have this problem, this problem, their daughter's name is X, Y, Z. It was, it was fraud. It was complete and utter fraud. And um, people gave him glory, right? And they gave him lots and lots of money, and they placed their hopes and their dreams upon the word from the Lord that he had to give to them. I wish that I could say Peter Popoff was the only one that ever did that. But the truth is, is that throughout the history of the world, there have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men and women who have gotten up in front of crowds and have said, I have a word from the Lord. And what they really meant was, I have a need for your wallet. I have a need for your attention. I have a desire to own for myself what is yours. I'm, a, I'm honestly, this may be a weird thing to hear from a pastor, um, but I am truly a skeptic, like at heart. Like that is my default mode. Um... Whenever people say things to me that sound incredible, I get immediately suspicious. That's just my, you call it a lack of faith, call it watching one too many 2020 specials about guys like Peter Popoff. Um, I'm a skeptic at heart. But the truth is, is that skepticism, at least the kind of skepticism that I have, is, is actually pretty empty. Any other skeptics out there? You go through your whole life doubting everything, and if you, if you really had to be honest, like, at the, at the bottom of the well of doubt, there's nothing there. There's, there's nothing of substance. There's nothing to hinge your life on. There's still something that you recognize that's missing. We still need to hear a word from God. There have been thousands of men and women who have lied about hearing from God, but the average person, you and me, we still need to hear a word from God. How do we sort through the liars from the people telling the truth? 
how do we know the person who places his hand on our shoulder and says, I have a word from the Lord for you? How do we know if it's real or not? In this section of scripture that we're going to go over today, we find at least a partial answer to this question. How do you tell a charlatan? How do you tell a fake from someone who's real? How do you tell um, a a real, um, godly leader in the church from someone who's only out for themselves? Um, We're going to go through, and I'm going to mark out really three attributes um, for someone who's truly from the Lord. Um, These three things come directly from the scripture, and we'll just kind of go down one after another and work through them. Um, The first one is that first and foremost, a real messenger of God, a real, true, like, unselfish church leader, Um, at the center of their heart and the most, like, at the foundation of everything they do is a care and a concern for the gospel. The message that Christ came to die for you, to, to, to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from your sins, and to take you from being in a place where God's hostility rests over you and place you into a place where God's love strengthens you and lifts you up. So first and foremost, the first attribute that we see in a true messenger from God is they have a deep primary concern for the gospel. Let's read the scripture again, starting in verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had a boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And so we said the the past few weeks, um, Paul had begun his missionary journey into the the area of, of of the world known as Macedonia. The first place that he went to was Philippi. And what happened after he was there for a little bit? They they chased him out of town, basically. And then he arrives and Thessalonica, and it happens again. Uh, This time there's a riot, and Paul has to leave town at night for fear of his own life. Um, But the entire time that Paul was in Thessalonica preaching the gospel to the Thessalonians, um, he was in the midst of conflict. He was suffering. And so we see Paul and his missionary team coming into the city of Thessalonica, caring about the people, wanting them to hear the gospel, and being willing to go through shameful treatment and conflict. And it's said that even though they came through conflict, they had a boldness in God to declare the gospel of God. And so the first place in these passages that we see that they have a primary foundational concern for the gospel is that they're willing to suffer for it. They're willing to go through hardship and trouble with boldness to declare the gospel. 
Everything that they say in all of their teaching revolves around the fact that Christ died to save you. That was at the middle of everything. It continues in verse 3. Paul says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. And so they came in town, into town, they preached the gospel and the gospel alone, and they did so in a way that was free from these things. What we see in verse 3 is that their message, the, the message of the gospel that they preached was trustworthy in every way. It was a trustworthy message. He starts by saying it was free from error. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how it was Paul's pattern. Whenever he came into a city and he taught the gospel, he would start by going to the synagogue, opening up the scriptures, and reasoning from the scriptures. And so he was able to say, this is my message, this is what's true, and you know that it's true, you know that it's free from error, because I was able to walk you through the scripture, the, the, the word of God that you have already accepted, um, at, at least if they were the Jewish audience, and I've been able to show you where it is in the scripture that I'm getting the ideas that I have. And so the, the, the message that they preached was free from error. And it was also free from impurity. What he means by that is if you compare the message that he preached, the things that he said to them, it looked remarkably different from the things that other first century cults and religions were saying to the people in Thessalonica. There were no selfish motives in the actual message that Paul preached. And so this is, and this may sound like gross to some of you, but other first century, first century religious leaders of other religions and cults would basically come into a city um, or they would establish in a city and they would say things like, a part of worshiping this God, and Dionysus or something of that nature, is um, being involved in like basically a gross sex party. And this is how we worship God. Um, it, it, the funny thing was is oftentimes the religions of the other people in these cities were religions where um, <laughs> the religious leaders got a lot of carnal pleasure out of people serving the gods that they preached. I mean, do, do, you get, do you get what's there? And what Paul says is whenever he comes into town, the message he preaches doesn't have any hint of me and my boys are getting any kind of carnal pleasure out of this. Um, there's no, there's no uh, a big drunken party that Paul's trying to get people to throw him. No feast that he's looking. He's not looking for delectable foods or for warm bodies. He's not looking for impurity. And it's clear in the words that he speaks that that's the farthest thing from his mind. And so that's another sign that the message was trustworthy. And then he says that there's no attempt to deceive. Basically, he's not playing any, like, rhetorical tricks. I don't know if you've ever heard, like, somebody who's a really good, like, speech person. Some of you have been in, uh, went to college, gone through, like, speech classes. 
and there'll be people in the class that they use the, the techniques that they teach you, and they could convince you to do just about anything, right? To vote for a party you disagree with, to like buy laundry soap you don't need, just because they're really good at it. Um, any, anybody here know a high-pressure, really good salesman? I know one of them's not here, but we all know a good, a good salesman in our congregation, right? There are techniques that you can use to help get people to come along with you, right? Um, and what Paul is saying here is that they didn't use any of those. Um, Paul says elsewhere in Scripture that he's not, he wasn't really impressive to look at, and so he wasn't a naturally magnetic man. And what he's saying is, you know, you know me, we came into town and we preached without error, there was no impurity in our message, and I, we didn't use any clever rhetorical ability. There was none of that. We came to you with the gospel and the gospel alone. Verse 4 says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And so we see that as Paul examined um, himself, as Paul examined his missionary party, um, he saw himself and his helpers as people who were entrusted by God with a word that was desperately important. And not only were they entrusted by God with the gospel, but they were also what? They were accountable. They were accountable to God. And so they came into the city. The gospel was at the center of everything that they said because they knew that if anything else became primary, that they would stand before God one day and give an account for every word. So we see that these, the, these men, these men from God, were concerned first and foremost with the gospel. And it drove everything they did. That leads us directly into the second kind of attribute we see in someone who very well, quite possibly, really might actually be from the Lord. We see not only a central focus on the gospel, but we also see the second one is a willingness to labor. A willingness to do actual, real, hard work. We'll see this as we move through into verse 5. Verse 5 says this, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So in the last verses, we learned about the trustworthiness of their message what they had said, and now we see trustworthiness in their behavior. They didn't come, it says, with words of flattery. Um, who, who doesn't like to be flattered? Anybody here, like, just, it's nice whenever someone comes up to you and says, you're really beautiful, you're really smart, 
I wish I was as smart as you. I wish I was as beautiful as you. I wish I could shoot a basketball like you. Right? That stuff makes you feel good. Um, and what happens whenever people get flattered? They lower their guard. This is an obviously a very astute person to recognize how awesome I am. Right? And so if you wanted someone to do what you want them to do, flattery is helpful. But that's not how they acted. They didn't come with any words of flattery. And it says they also didn't come with a pretext for greed. Um, if, you, if you've ever read this passage out of the King James, I, I really like the imagery it gives. It says we didn't come with a cloak of covetousness. You, you get what I'm saying? Um, a pretext literally is like a, a screen that you put out in front so that people can't see through, through to your true motives. Um, and basically what Paul is saying is that we didn't come to you and like throw up a cloak to mask the greed that was in our hearts. You know, there was no speech where they looked out and passionately said, think of the children, right? You know, we need your money. Open your wallets today because of the children. Um, there was no... There was no trying to fool them to get them to turn over their wallets. There's no pretext for greed. And then they said, God is witness. And so what they're basically saying here is that this is truly, truly what we did. God's our witness. There was no half-heartedness, no have-truths that, that they could hide behind. And so they didn't come in, they didn't flatter, they didn't throw up a false image in the hopes that people would like, oh, come over, stay with me, have some of my food, here's a little bit of money, looks like you need a new cloak, let's get a new cloak on you. There was none of that. I'm going to jump down to verse 9, um, because in verse 9 we get the exact opposite. So we see their behavior is not words of flattery, not a cloak to hide greed to get people to give things to them. Rather, in verse 9, it says this. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. He's saying, you remember our labor and our toil. Does that sound fun to anyone? Like labor. You may say, well, I like a good day's hard work, right? I feel good after a good day's hard work. Well, if labor sounds okay to you, how about toil? Huh? Toil is like whenever you are working on something and it just doesn't ever stop. Okay? That's the type of work for anyone who's ever worked into, in a factory on a line. And they're not actually seeing the completed product. They're just in the middle of lining, putting widget A on widget B and sending it down. And then another widget A, widget B, send it down. Widget A, widget B, send it down. For 30 years, right? That's toil. The same thing over and over. And you don't ever really get to see anything completed. That's the image that we have with toil. Dig a hole, fill it back up. Dig a hole, fill it back up. 
And so for the short time that Paul and his friends were in Thessalonica, not only were they spending all their time trying to preach the gospel, but they were also working, doing labor to provide for their finances. We know from elsewhere in the scripture that Paul was a tent maker. Um, Most likely the job that he did was some kind of leather working. Like he would take animal skins and prepare them so that they could be used in tents or sails or other types of large things that you need large pieces of fabric for. And so they were bivocational while they were there. And it says they worked night and day to the point that their exhaustion would have been plain. And it says that they did this so that they wouldn't be a burden. That's the exact opposite of what you expect from some religious troop that breezes into town looking for money, right? We didn't want to be a burden to you, and so we worked ourselves to the bone. This was Paul's regular pattern. Um, We see it throughout the scripture, and we know that Thessalonica was not the only town where he acted this way. He didn't like to take money from the people in the cities that he was in. There were times whenever he had supporters in other cities. Um, That church in Philippi, where he was driven out of, you know, just before he came to Thessalonica, would eventually become a financial supporter to help him move throughout the rest of Macedonia. So it's not that he never took any money, but whenever he was among people, he always refused. Even though... Um, he didn't really even have to. Um, we're going to put up a scripture on the screen from 1 Corinthians 9, 12. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is basically laying out that the truth is, is that if you, if you spend your life working for the gospel, that you deserve to make your living from the gospel. And he lays that out very cleanly. And he even mentions other apostles and basically says, like, the other apostles take wives along, and they've got, like, this big fundraising. You know, they, they have support. And he's not saying that that's bad. He's not saying that that's sin. But that wasn't his, pra- that wasn't his practice. Um, he was used to having accusations thrown at him, and he, didn't wa- he wanted to be able to refute the accusations. And so we have, this is just a, a, to pull out of that entire chapter which speaks on the issue. And he, he says this to the Corinthian church. He says, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Like, since they were the ones that actually started the church there and not just those that came later. He says, shouldn't we have it more? He says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than to hinder the gospel of Christ. There must be a willingness to labor. Hear me on this. It is not sinful for a pastor or a missionary or some other person who preaches the gospel to get paid. It's not sinful for them to get paid. It can be helpful for them to get paid, to free them up to do the work they need to do. But hear me on this. Getting paid is not the point. That's not why they do it. If you look at the percentage of a person's teaching, and if the weight seems to be on, sow your faith seed into my ministry, please. 
Send your check. Make sure you have the right address. We take credit card now. People who minister the gospel that seem obsessed with money to the point that the gospel is no longer the point are not sent by God. Men sent by God are willing to labor for the sake of the gospel. So whether a person's in full-time supported ministry or is bivocational, they're willing to labor for the sake of the gospel. And so we've seen that they need to have a focus on the gospel being the first attribute, a willingness to labor being the second attribute, and now the final one that we find in these passages is this. They have the attitude of family. They don't look at their flocks as followers, but as family. Let's jump back up to verse 6. It says this. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. We'll start here by acknowledging that Paul really was an apostle of Jesus Christ, which meant he had real authority. Jesus Christ literally appeared to Paul and said, I am sending you. Like, I, have, I personally have experienced a call to preach the gospel, but, like, I didn't see him. In a, you know, like, he didn't appear to me on a road and knock me off a horse. Like, Paul had the full commission. He had the full authority as an apostle. And he says, we could have made demands, right? He could have said, I am your leader, follow me. But they didn't seek honor, even though in reality they were owed it. And that's not the form of leadership that we're used to, is it? Like the form of leadership that we see in this country is the kind that steps out and puffs out its chest and says, I'm in charge. That's not the form of leadership that Paul and his people modeled. And it's not the form of leadership that Jesus taught about. I'm just going to read another scripture out of Luke. Uh, In Luke chapter 22, there's an argument among the disciples of Jesus about who's the most awesome. Like, who's going to be the most powerful in the kingdom of God? And Jesus takes them aside, and he, he tells them to chill out, basically, and this is what he says. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves." So Jesus takes his disciples aside and he says, it's clear who the person in charge is in a room when you walk in. But Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not that kind of person, am I? I'm here to serve, not to be served. 
leadership in the church should not look like leadership everywhere else. So what does it look like? Verses 7 and 8. Instead, it says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you, not as only the gospel of God, not, I'm sorry, not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So they don't bust into the room and say, I'm large and in charge. They come into the room with gentleness. Like a mother with young nursing children. That means that they were attentive, nurturing. And it says that they were affectionately desirous of the Thessalonians. As a parent, I get this because whenever I look at my children, I want things for them, right? I want them to do well and to prosper and to be responsible. Like someday, I want to go over to their house and see their families and just be, man, look how great this is, right? Like I want them to have success. Like I love them, and I desire the best for them. Some of you experience that as parents. Some of you have experienced that as children. Some of you have experienced that as someone who's been kind of adopted into a family that wasn't your own, by a teacher or an aunt or an uncle. And Paul says he and the others with him came in and all they wanted was just to see the Thessalonians grow and prosper and do well. And that they intended to sacrifice to help them get there. And so we have that image of motherly care, a family relationship that, that is an image of the type of leadership that they had. And we see another image in verses 10 through 12. This is the last scripture we'll read as we finish out the passage. It says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so motherly care is a very real image that's in this passage, but it's not the only family image that we see. It's not just the type of nurturing that you would expect from a mother, but there's also the image of a father. It starts out by saying, you're a witness of God also, how righteous and blameless we were. And so it's the image of a father who stands up as a good example for his kids, first and foremost. He has a righteous and blameless example. And then it says that he exhorted and encouraged and charged. So rather than nurture, you see in this father figure someone who is interested in instruction and training. 
so that those, those things that they aspire for the Thessalonians to have, that they can be equipped to do them. Like at some point, <laughs> um, my father had to take me aside and say, like, this is how you use a hammer to put a nail in a board, right? This is how um, you, you can tell if it's your battery that's dead or if it's your alternator. Like, he, he gave me practical instruction with how to do the things in life that he knew that I would need to do. Like, your, your engine will explode if you don't check the oil. So you have to do that, right? And so we see the, uh, the desire in Paul and his people to be like fathers with children. It says they exhorted, they encouraged, and they charged these three words are very, actually very closely associated. Um, the idea is it's, it's like, an, it's like a, a, a friendly, urgent coaching that they would do. And they did that so that the Thessalonians would walk in a manner worthy of God. Picture a father looking at his child and saying, behave properly, please. Come on, stop it. Don't act like that. Don't be a fool. Recognize the consequences. Right? So Paul looks at them and says, God has a kingdom and a glory to invite you into. Like, you're his child if you love him. That should change the way you live, right? If God loves you and has invited you into his family, like, stop acting like a jerk. There was encouragement and exhortation so that they would walk in a way that was proper before God. And so for Paul's ministry team, the gospel transformation was everything. It was everything. They wanted to see the gospel change the lives of this church. And that desire to see the gospel change the way um, this church lived changed the way that they acted. They were willing to labor they looked and they said, this is my family, how can I help them grow? And so those are the three attributes we find. In someone that could come and say, truly this person is from God. They're focused on the gospel. It's central, it's key, it's foundational. They're willing to labor. They're not looking to fleece the flock, like to get all the wool they can and, and get out the door. They're people who are willing to labor, and they're people that see the church as family, not as followers, not as subjects, but as family. Just a few notes of application. Um, as we said well, last week, there are some in this congregation that I know aspire to be leaders in the church. How does this line up with your view of leadership? Like, ask yourself that question. If you want to be a pastor or a youth minister or some kind of church leader person, when you picture yourself exercising that leadership, does it look like a life centered on the gospel? Does it look like labor? Does it look like sacrificing for children? Or do you picture glory and pats on the back?
those of you who say, I want nothing to do with church leadership. No thanks, I got my own thing. Like, I'm not looking for that. That's totally cool. Believe me, I get it. Um, my question to you is, um, what do you value in leadership? Like, if we go through here and we say that a godly leader is someone who acts like a mother or a father who labors and sacrifices, um, notice that we didn't mention anything in there about being a dynamic speaker or having awesome business skills or fill in the blank, the types of things that people like. There's no magnetic personality in any of these descriptions. What do you value in church leadership? Would you look at someone who God truly sent to speak a word to you from the scripture and say, well, they're just not impressive enough, really. They can't really be from God. And then just Christians in general. When you pursue others with Jesus, family members, that you want to know who Christ is, what's your heart towards them? Are you willing to turn to a family member or to a friend and, it, and let the gospel be central in your heart towards them? Everybody's a leader in some way, shape, or form. Will, be a, will you be a leader like this? Will you have affection and be willing to labor for those that you say you love to call them to Christ? And then um, finally, for, for those of you who are not quite sure where you are spiritually, like you're just asking the question. Welcome to Karis. We're not here to win a fan club. We're not here because we want your money. Um, what we want is for you to experience grace. We want you to experience God. We want you to hear a word from him. Not because we want you to think we're awesome, but because we think he's awesome. And we know that he can change your life. Please pray with me.